Optimal health for high performers. This is the Health Upgrade Podcast with Dr. Nawaz Habib. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Nicole. It's exciting to have you here. Oh, it's so great to be here. Thank you. I would love to kind of dig into this really important topic of understanding the behavior of our kids. Now, you have experience in this personally, you have experience in this clinically, you have four kids of your own. So you've been through, I'm sure the ringer and back. And I always love learning from you about how we can use nutrition, use lifestyle, use the tools that are at our disposal to help improve our children's behavior and how we interact with them on a one-on-one basis. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're going to dig into today. It'll be a very organic call and a very organic conversation. So let's start with kind of how you got into this particular realm. What was your story? Yeah, my story professionally has been definitely not a straight line, a, a winding journey, which has worked out beautifully. And also I think is a great example for parents out there who maybe worry about, you know, their kid not knowing exactly what they want to do, or even for kids, a lot of um, kids and young adults get super anxious and even depressed around, you know, the idea of not having a set thing that they know that they want to do. And so I like to provide my own story as an example of guess what? we can start in one place and end in a totally different place and it all works and it's all good. So, you know, I started my uh, career in the field of education. Actually, I was a teacher was my first career. Um, I have a bachelor's and a master's degree in education, specifically special education and spent many years building programs in schools and working with kids of all ages. I did little ones and I also worked in middle school and high school environments with Um, a range of emotional and behavioral disorders, learning disabilities, autism spectrum disorders, those kinds of things. And while I loved my work in the schools, I really started to become passionate about what was happening for kids outside of school and what was happening with their families, because I had parents and, you know, caregivers coming to me and saying, what you're doing with our kid during the school day is amazing, but you have them for like six hours a day we have them the rest of the time. We don't, we don't know how to manage things. We don't know how to raise these kids. We need help. And so that really led me to go back and get a doctorate in clinical psychology. So shifted fields out of um, child development and education and into clinical psychology, because I really wanted to be able to work with families from the point at which they began to realize that maybe there was something outside the norm or their child was struggling or they didn't know what to do and really take them through the process of um, supporting them and helping kids to improve and, you know, doing evaluation and clinical diagnosis when necessary. So I opened a private practice um, that's still in existence today. We have a group practice specializing in working with children, teens, and young adults primarily. So our clientele is typically birthed through about 30, age 30 with a whole range of neurodevelopmental and mental health issues with a very parent and family focused and very holistic approach. And where the more holistic piece came in is, you know, so I've got my background in education. Now I've got my practice and working with, you know, thousands of kids and their families. And I began to see these patterns in a lot of the kids and young adults coming in where they were coming to see us 
because of issues like, you know, the teacher thinks that he has ADHD or I'm at my wits end because I can't get him to do anything I say. He won't go to bed at night. He screams all the time, you know, and everything in between. So that's why they were coming to my office. But as I was taking a history of like, okay, tell me about your kid's life. Like, let's delve into this. I began to realize that the vast majority of these kids had a significant physical health or medical health history. Things like chronic eczema, allergies, asthma, chronic constipation, IBS, seizures, migraines, you know, all of these things and, you know, really picky eating. And at the same time, as I started noticing those patterns in my patients, um, I, at that point was a mom had, you know, my four kids and started to see some of those same patterns in my youngest two kids where I was like, huh, my two kids who are struggling more with just emotional regulation and, and just sort of aspects of their development are also my two kids who have problems with dairy allergies, who have eczema, you know, my daughter with two years of unrelenting ear infections and tonsillitis and all of that. And so it sort of converged where one day I was like, there's gotta be something here. Now, it seems so obvious to me in hindsight, but at the time, you know, I was a traditionally trained clinical psychologist. I knew all about child development and psychology and clinical diagnoses and assessment, but we didn't learn anything about the brain-body connection, about the connection between mental health and physical health. So I start Googling, I start going on PubMed, I start researching this and was really amazed to discover this body of research literature around the very real connections between health conditions in kids and behavioral disorders and neurological issues between food intake and nutrition and nutrient status and mental health and neurodevelopmental issues. And so as I delved into this, I was like, wow. So I started playing with it with my own kids, you know, doing some things at the clinic and really decided that I no longer could practice as a clinical psychologist without incorporating these other pieces, without incorporating nutrition, lifestyle, sleep, stress management. So I went back to school again um, and got a master's of science in nutrition and integrative health to really be able to make those pieces concrete and bring that into my assessment and my treatment of patients. And, you know, that's really what I do today is take a very holistic, you know, full view of a child the symptoms are just the red flag that's telling us that something's wrong. And typically when we're talking about kids and their behavior and their development, the focus is on those symptoms. My kid is tantruming all the time. How do I make that go away? My kid won't pay attention in class. What do I do to stop that? And really these symptoms are just an indicator of what is going on in the brain and the body of the child. And when we start digging into that, what we discover is there's a whole realm of tools that we have at our disposal that we can use to support the development and mental health of kids. So that's really what I spend my time doing today. I, I don't see too many patients of my own in clinical practice anymore, although I still run you know, the clinic, but I do a lot of teaching and speaking and consulting and really trying to help more professionals understand these connections and really reaching more parents with this information. So, so that's, that's where my winding journey has brought me to, at least for now. It's awesome when you have this journey that really takes you along the, A, what's your passion? And then B, once you figure out these patterns, you realize and, you, and your curiosity kind of kicks in and yeah. says, 
oh, I didn't know that. And I didn't know that I didn't know that. Yeah. Now I'm going to go and learn about this. And, and as you go through this journey, you realize there's a whole world out there of stuff that we don't yet know. That's right. And that's what's really cool. So thank you for that. And, and yeah. I'm sure on, on your journey, you came across, you, you mentioned the patterns. And I think I want to dig into maybe some of the more common patterns that you tend to notice. Yeah. You mentioned with your own kids, the dairy and, and uh, certain nutritional concerns and where they might lead to. Yeah. Some of the most common things that we see when kids are presenting with behavioral learning, you know, attention, mood, any of that realm of symptoms, some of the most common things that we see physiologically for them are GI issues. Very common. So I would say the most common issue is constipation. And interestingly enough, many parents don't even realize that their kids are chronically constipated, but they are. Issues with digestion, chronic stomach aches, reflux, those kinds of things. Uh, You know, some of these kids having been diagnosed with reflux as babies and just given, you know, PPI medications for years now, which we know has really significant problematic effects on not just physically what's going on, but also on on the brain and on behavior. So the GI realm of things, um, but then also the immune pieces. So kids, more and more kids with full-blown allergies, like not even just sensitivities or intolerances, but full-blown anaphylactic, you know, allergy kinds of issues to foods, to things in the environment. So that's a tip off. We are seeing rates of asthma at like we've never seen before. Blood sugar dysregulation is a common one. You know, it's so interesting. I've been in practice for 25 years and, you know, even 20 years ago to even have a conversation around children having chronic, you know, obesity, having blood sugar dysregulation, having type two diabetes or pre-diabetic blood markers, having kids with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, like People would have laughed if we had talked about these things 20 years ago because we just didn't see kids with these issues. Now, that's becoming more and more common. So kids with metabolic dysfunction, blood sugar dysregulation, those kinds of things. And then I think also more of the the brain-based pieces around things like chronic headaches, autonomic nervous system dysfunction, dizziness circulation issues, like, you know, all of these things that again, we didn't used to see. And the other piece then is infectious issues. Many, many times, I would say probably solidly 80% of the time, kids who present to the clinic and even parents who I consult with elsewhere, when we dig into their early health history, had an early history of chronic ear infections, and maybe chronic meaning they had two or three in their first two years that they were on antibiotics for each of those ear infections. Strep throat, or if not strep, chronic tonsillitis, you know, needing to have their tonsils removed, airway kinds of issues like constant sinus infections, you know, adenoid issues, those types of garden variety things that when I start to ask about those things, parents often go, well, wait a second, like, you're a doctor of clinical psychology. Like, why are you asking about my kids' poops, like ear infections? And when I explain to them, well, this is all part of the picture of your child's symptoms, it makes so much sense to them. And you know what they always tell me? No one has ever asked me about these things before. 
And by the time families get to our clinic, because we see pretty significant kinds of presentations and cases, the vast majority of our families have been to lots of other providers in both the medical and the mental health realm. And no one has asked about these things and no one has connected the dots for them. And so of course, what you and I know is there are so many pathways connecting these pieces, right? Like on the surface, because we have this artificial disconnect in the fields of medicine and mental health around, you know, well, mental health is like the mind and psychologically what's going on in the brain. And then everything else is physical health. And those things are not connected. Well, we know that's not true. And so we know that, okay, a kid who has had a lot of ear infections at an early age, who's been on a lot of courses of antibiotics, but what's going on there? Those antibiotics get rid of the ear infection. However, they completely disrupt that child's developing gut microbiome, that community of microorganisms in there. And you say, okay, well, so that might give them diarrhea or whatever. Yeah, I know antibiotics can give kids diarrhea. Okay, yes. And when we disrupt that community of microorganisms, particularly in early developmental stages, we change the trajectory of that child's physical development of the development of their microbiome and subsequently their brain development because that gut microbiome is so connected to what's happening in the brain, to what's happening inflammation wise. So, you know, that's one way that those things are connected. If we have a kid with chronic constipation, parents say to me, well, what does that have to do with the fact that my kid has ADHD and is like melting down and getting angry all the time? Well, on a very basic level, let's just think about the last time any of us had a GI issue, right? Last time any of us had some constipation, diarrhea, whatever, you know, on our A game, no, it's uncomfortable. It can be painful. So that alone, we can see how that then connects to a child's mood, behavior, emotions. But on a deeper level, a kid who's chronically constipated and not having regular healthy bowel movements, that's telling us that something in their gut, something in their microbiome is not operating the way that it should be. And that, of course, is having consequences for how their brain is functioning, how well they're able to regulate themselves. So, you know, these are the things that I try to help parents start to understand and, and connect the dots with that, because this is so common. It's rare. It's so rare for me to see a child these days who doesn't have multiple significant health, physical health history components that are connected to their mental health and their brain symptoms. It's really sad to hear that because A, we're, we're starting to connect the dots and more and more people are becoming aware of this. And, and thank you for really being one of the people leading the charge on this. It's sad to hear about that significant disconnect that we have between understanding mental health and understanding physical health and realizing that the holistic approach is necessary and that the science is clear yes. about this. Yeah. You can count me as one of those people that had ear infections and multiple rounds of antibiotics when I was a kid with exertional asthma. All of these things were in yep. my health history that I didn't know about. My mom was learning about slowly and surely. She really was the prompt for me to get into functional space, yeah. by the way. But we're talking like 35, 40 years ago, we never knew about these things. It wasn't out there as it, as it is now. That's right. And understanding the fact that this information is out there, but it's not yet being used is really quite sad. But yeah. you've mentioned the microbiome a few times, and I really want to dig into that because 
I know it's something that you're really interested in. I know it's it's something that I am as well. And the interest in the vagus nerve does play that very yes. specific role between that gut brain connection and physically being that piece that relays information from the brain to and from the gut. Let's dig into the microbiome a little bit. I'm sure you mentioned already the antibiotic use uh, that probably just knocks out a ton of the bacteria yeah. and the good bacteria. Let's dig into that a little bit more. What's really important for people to understand here is that this is a bi-directional relationship, which means we have the gut microbiome. I mean, well, first of all, you know, to pan out, of course, there are many microbiomes, right? We have a skin microbiome, a vaginal microbiome. I mean, there's even like work now being done on brain microbiome. There's a microbiome in the world around it. So, but really for, for the purpose of this conversation and, and where the research really is, we're talking about the gut microbiome. And so it's bi-directional. The gut microbiome has an impact on a child's brain, on the development, both structural and functional development of the brain. So there, it goes in that direction. So problems with the gut microbiome, either you know an imbalance of microorganisms, too many pathogenic or problematic microorganisms, or more commonly, too few beneficial and necessary microbes, that has then an effect on the brain. But this relationship also goes the other way. What's going on in the brain also has an impact on the gut microbiome and on the ability of the gut microbiome to maintain good microbial balance, to function the way that it's supposed to. So, you know, the example with antibiotics, that's that bottom up, right? That's like, okay, we kill off everything. Like we get rid of the infectious ones that we don't want, but then we also get rid of the good guys. And so of course, then that imbalance acts on the brain and, and gives us problems there. However, it goes the other way too. So let's take an example of a child who's under chronic stress or even a more extreme example, a child who's experienced early developmental trauma. Okay. Maybe they've had a major medical incident that was traumatizing. Uh, maybe they've been in the foster or adoption system. Maybe they're in a very high stress, chronically dysfunctional home environment, whatever it might be. So how does that then impact the gut microbiome? Well, chronic unrelenting stress also changes the structure and function of a child's brain and the way that that brain wires up. And that chronic stress then has downstream effects of creating a situation where the body is constantly in sympathetic overdrive. The sympathetic nervous system is constantly activated. They don't go into parasympathetic or rest and digest. So why is that a problem? Well, number one, it increases inflammation throughout the body, which then has a negative effect on gut integrity and the microbiome. That chronic unrelenting stress and, and trauma also creates you know, a, a situation where they aren't digesting food well. You can't digest and make use of your food and absorb nutrients well when you are constantly in sympathetic nervous system mode, because that's not the mode that our GI system is able to digest and absorb nutrients. So without being able to get into that parasympathetic mode, what we have is kids, even some of them eating a fairly decent diet who are not able to extract 
the nutrients that they need from the food that they're eating. And then that has major effects on the gut microbiome. Also then going back up the other way has a major effect on brain structure and function because the food that we eat provides the literal building blocks for the brain, especially in children who literally are building a brain in the early years of their life. So these are some examples of how significant that microbiome piece is and how the relationship goes both ways and why it's not enough to say, oh, okay, well, I understand the microbiome has an impact. I'll just give my child a probiotic. Or, oh, I have this child now who has come into my family who has been through severe developmental trauma. I'm going to put them in counseling. Okay, both of those approaches may be beneficial, but they're only part of the equation. Because when we understand this bi-directional relationship, we then immediately realize that we need to address these kinds of symptoms and issues and needs in kids from both. And, and not just one and not just the other, but from more of a systems point of view. The simple analogy that I use to help people understand this is that we're a puzzle, right? Yeah. We're a thousand piece puzzle. And putting one piece, for example, taking the kid to counseling after they've been through a traumatic incident, that's a piece of the puzzle. And you found that and that's wonderful. And the diet is a piece of the puzzle and the microbiome is many of those pieces of the puzzle. Yeah. And, and understanding that it's so much more complicated and yet so much more simple than we yeah. make it out to be. That's right. We make it into complex breakdowns of every single one of those puzzle pieces when in reality we can address the holistic approach in a much right. simpler manner in a lot of these cases. What I want to say about that, especially if people are listening who maybe have, you know, had symptoms themselves, maybe they have a child who's struggling and, and they feel like, like they're doing the things they were told to do. Here's, we're really at a crossroads in mental health right now, because it's very clear that the things that we have historically done to try to impact symptom improvement and change in people with mental health diagnoses, which includes the whole realm of neurodevelopmental issues in kids, are simply not effective for most people and certainly lack effectiveness in the long term. Those tools primarily being various forms of psychotherapy or counseling and psychiatric medications. Those are really the mainstays of what the fields of psychiatry and psychology and mental health more broadly have had to offer. And that can feel so demoralizing and hopeless and depressing to people who have been in that system and have done those things and still aren't feeling or functioning better. And I have so many parents who throw their hands up and they go, well, there's, this is just, you know, my kid's so broken, there's nothing we can do. And so why I think these kinds of conversations are so important is because it gives people hope and not just like woo-woo hope, but like research-based tangible hope that actually what you've been told to do and what you've been doing are simply two pieces of the puzzle, as you say. And there are lots of other pieces that when we can bring those in, your child can feel and function better. You can feel and function better. And this is the reckoning that's happening in medicine and mental health right now. And not just around psychiatry and psychology, but even around chronic illness on 
you know, the medical side of things, we simply have got to come to terms with the fact that what we've done isn't getting great results for the vast majority of people. And we have to start understanding this differently. And these pieces, and as you said, understanding the pieces, it isn't complicated. It's actually pretty simple. Now, not necessarily easy, right? Simple and easy are two different things, but it's actually quite simple to fill in those missing pieces once you know what you're looking for there. So I think, I think that's such an important message for people to have. I love that. Yeah, the, the difference between simple and easy are, are very important to understand here. Uh-huh. And when you take that broader view, when you step back and look at it from a perspective that's a little bit more macro and, and you understand that there are pieces to this puzzle that are just not being put in, you can start to identify where those places are and where those pieces need to go. Yeah. You mentioned trauma. Yeah. And childhood trauma and some of the challenges that children experience when they're younger, that affect them when they're older. And the last couple of years have kind of been what's going to be a long-term research study in, yeah. into understanding mental yeah. health struggles and chronic childhood trauma. I'm not here to talk about COVID-19 right now, whatever right. it is, it is. Yeah. Right. But I want to talk about the effects of being on virtual school, the effects of masking children and masking adults around children in terms of developmental understanding and learning and some of the traumas and things that you've experienced or noticed in practice through the last couple of years? Yeah, it's an important question. And I think it's on so many parents' minds these days. And there is no doubt the data is clear. We have seen an exponential increase in the number of children and adults experiencing symptoms of various types of anxiety disorders various types of mood and depressive disorders. In children, absolutely the entire realm of behavioral disorders. What's important to know about this is that the numbers were already increasing year over year before the pandemic. The pandemic just sort of put rocket fuel in that tank and you know has exponentially increased it. So the data is very clear. There's no doubt that more kids are struggling. I like to put this in context, though, because sort of the the media headlines around this and and the takeaway that, that, you know, people end up with is look at, you know, all of the people now, all the kids with mental illness. And it's like, well, wait a second. It makes perfect sense that a lot of kids are struggling with symptoms of anxiety, depression, behavioral, like that's a normal human reaction to a very abnormal situation. So I get concerned about sort of the proposed you know, remedy to this, which is we just need to get, you know, all of these kids, all of these adults into our standard of care, which is get them diagnosed with a mental health disorder, get them into counseling, get them into psychiatry. It's like, wait a second. No, these are individuals who, again, are having a very normal response to a very abnormal situation and particularly for children. We know the research has been clear forever that children, when they are in situations where there's more chaos, where there's a breakdown in the basic structures of life, where there's high uncertainty, where the adults around them are struggling and not managing well. 
Of course, kids are going to have a breakdown in their emotional and behavioral regulation, their ability to focus and attend, their you know, ability even to regulate their physical activity, their sleep, all of these things. So to me, it's not a surprise. And again, like you said, you know, not, not here to get into you know, arguments over whether how any of this was handled was good, bad, or in between, doesn't matter. The situation has been one of immense uncertainty mm-hmm. for two years. People don't do well with chronic, unrelenting high levels of uncertainty. It's incompatible with how our brains are designed to function. So of course people are struggling. And what do we do about that? Well, from a child perspective, one of the most important things that I've been saying this to parents publicly and and in private sessions with them since the pandemic started, the most important thing that we can do for our children or for the kids that we work with is to figure out how to take care of ourselves and manage our own stuff. The number one thing that helps kids get through chronic periods of disarray, uncertainty, and trauma in their life is having stable adults who are managing their own brains and bodies and reaction to things. I get that that's unpopular because it means we have to look at ourselves, but honestly, that's kind of 95% of the game with kids anyway, pandemic or no pandemic, like that's the spoiler alert. So we need to manage our own stuff. And at the same time, we also need to realize that some kids are needing more intensive support around this. Some kids are needing counseling when they maybe didn't before. They're needing their parents to get specific strategies and consultation around how to deal with very tangible things like separation anxiety. We saw that rampantly at the start of this school year when everybody had been gone back to school. Well, for kids who already experienced anxiety pre-pandemic and and maybe some separation issues, and maybe it wasn't a full-blown separation anxiety disorder, Well, guess what? You put them in the comfort of their home with mom and dad or mom and whoever, you know, all the time, their anxiety went way, way down. Now, all of a sudden it's like, oh, no, we're not doing virtual school. You know, starting on Monday, you're back in there and they're freaking out and parents need tools for that. So we need those specific tools for them as well, but really we need to be managing us. Yeah. I I love that. I kind of had goosebumps when you said that. It 100% comes down to us and how we are managing and and handling ourselves and how we show up for our kids as as parents. And so like, if there's one big takeaway from this podcast today, it's look inwards, look at yourself, look at how you are handling yourself around your kids. And they, they learn from us. Our energy goes directly into them. And they mirror our energy. Mm-hmm. And so if we are struggling, if we're having trouble managing our diet or having trouble with the separation anxiety or being on a screen all day, every day, and then we take it upstairs or downstairs to them, mm-hmm. then they're going to experience that same anxiety and that same stress. And that, that anxiety, if they were already sitting on a chronically, just a little bit onto that sympathetic activated mm-hmm. side, being a little bit anxious to begin with, being not in the best digestive state or in the rest and recovery state as they should be, add in this entire piece of now we've thrown on this energy of we're going back and now there's anxiety about seeing friends and being on online versus offline and then the on and off shifts. 
it, it really does come down to us and being able to teach ourselves how to shift our state from that sympathetic dominant uh, fight or flight state into that rest, digest, recovery, vagus activated state, because that energy then leads to them being able to take on that positive energy. Yeah. And I'd love to start getting into some of those more practical day-to-day yeah. tools that we can use to help not just ourselves, but our kids then get into those positive states. Yeah. There's a few categories here. So let's start with nutrition. This is a great example of when we start to talk about this, uh, sort of the, it's simple, but it's not necessarily easy, right? The simple truth of this, and this is not my opinion, this is the research supported fact, you know, nutrients in food provide the building blocks for a child's brain and their ability to function. Everything from how the brain is wired up to the neurotransmitters that allow for even keeled mood and regulation and all of those things. So what we eat matters. It matters a lot. It matters for us as adults and it matters exponentially more for children. So when we have a situation as we have right now, a study that just came out showing this was on data um, gathered pre-pandemic that 68% of a child's food intake on average in the US is ultra processed foods. Ultra processed meaning, you know, coming in a bag, a box or whatever, factory made, but having a huge list of really, really problematic ingredients, everything from high fructose corn syrup to artificial food dyes, to artificial sweeteners, to, you know, all these things. These are ultra processed foods. And what the data shows is even before the pandemic in the US, school-age children, on average, 68% of their diet is ultra-processed foods. Why is that a problem? Well, because ultra-processed foods will give kids the calories to physically grow. When you go see your pediatrician, they won't say, oh my gosh, your kid is like falling off the growth chart. They're, they're not growing. It'll give them the calories to grow, but it doesn't give them the nutrient building blocks to support physical wellness, nor to support a properly functioning brain. So there's a big difference between giving your child an apple to eat, an apple that yes, has sugar in it naturally, but also has fiber, has a ton of phytonutrients, you know, all of these things that provide so many pieces of information and building blocks for the brain. There's a difference between that and giving your kid a juice box of apple juice where you've got a high amount of sugar, maybe even a lot of added sugars, maybe added colors, but even the quote unquote natural ones, you've now stripped all the fiber, all of the other nutrients out of that. And those things make a difference. So from a tangible standpoint, what's one of the simplest, most effective things we can do to support our kids? It's to feed them a more nutrient dense diet, which means we're focusing more on whole real foods, fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, whole grains, meats, seafoods, you know, those types of things, and less on the packaged processed cookies, crackers, fruit snacks, juices, sports drinks, all of that. Now notice I said more. It's not possible, and actually it's not good to aim for perfection with this. And let me tell you, as a mom of four, I get the very real situation in the morning of needing to pack lunch boxes and whatever. And luckily we have more convenience foods that are more nutrient dense than ever before. So I'm very practical about it. Yeah. But one easy step to take is to just go in your pantry 
and look at what are the things your kid is eating on a regular basis? What are you buying on a regular basis? And start looking at the labels. How many grams of added sugar are in those things? When you look at the ingredient panel, are you seeing things that you know what they are? Or are you seeing things you're like, I don't know what that is. Like, oh, that's like chemical sounding. And that is a starting point then for making some swaps. I am not going to tell any family that the solution to their kid's problem, what needs to happen is instantly they need to go on some radical, totally different diet. It will not work. But we do need to start looking at the facts of this and making some swaps. And to connect to what we were talking about previously, this has to actually start with us as the adults. We cannot say to our kids, your choices for after-school snack are a tangerine, an apple or celery with peanut butter, when they see us walking around with our big gulp diet Coke and you know our Snickers bar and our potato chips and whatever, even if you think you're hiding it from them, you're not, they know. So it has to start with us. We have to be willing to address this for ourselves and to actually do it as a family. And to say, we're going to make some changes here to support all of us. So that's one tangible start there, just decreasing the amount of chemicals and added sugars. Um, Kids can learn to do this too. They actually like it. They like to learn where to look on the label and to see in the store if they can find different options. The other piece around nutrition that I think is a very tangible starting point is to get your kids drinking more water. Shift towards getting the sports drinks, the juices, the soda pop, that stuff out of the house, however slowly you need to do that, and shift towards good old water, because we have studies that show that most kids are walking around at least mildly dehydrated, and even at mild levels of dehydration, their learning and their behavior in school suffers. We have studies on that. So getting kids drinking more water throughout the day is another really tangible thing. So those are two things in the realm of nutrition that I think are simple, doable starting points. Yeah, the water piece for me, no question about it. Like I grew up in that same idea. And it's funny that you use that example, but apple juice was my like crutch. I loved it. It was my favorite thing on the planet. I would literally like open the can and sit in front of the fridge and drink it out of the can. It was crazy. Yep. So no question, stop drinking the calories, stop making those, those decisions on the water piece. It's a really simple alternative. And honestly, kids just tend to be more calm when they're hydrated. It's it's really interesting. I'm noticing that with mine. So true. And and the other piece is that even if you, you know, have a kid who's getting quite a bit of, uh, let's say sugar and various things throughout the day, keeping them hydrated with water, at least you are balancing that out. You're not adding more sugar in their beverages. And Actually, what I should have added to that list too is, is milk Yeah. because that's another big one. When we're talking about kids, Mm -hmm. people don't realize how much sugar is in milk and that many kids in their schools for their breakfast and lunch program are having the option, not only of a carton of white milk, which in and of itself, like one of those um, 12 ounce cartons, or depending on how big it is, you know, a, a serving of milk for a child has about 12 grams of sugar in it. And we have kids who are drinking milk throughout the day as their primary beverage. That really adds up. But on top of that, in schools, they're offered strawberry and chocolate milk, 
When you look at the label on that, the sugar content exponentially increases. In fact, some of those school cartons of strawberry or chocolate milk actually have more added sugar than the same number of ounces of a soda pop. And parents think that they're doing a good thing by my kids drinking milk. And, you know, this is not even getting into the discussion of how cow milk is very inflammatory for most kids and they don't do well with it and all that, but simply from the standpoint of what does your child's brain need to function properly, more sugar is not what it needs. And some kids are drinking an inordinate amount of milk as their beverage and just getting these doses of sugar, sugar, sugar all day long. So I like to mention that because milk is a big topic with parents. And it's, it's something to be aware of. Yeah. Milk builds your bones, doesn't it? That's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 It's quite scary how many people still don't yet realize right. what, what's added to it. And I think that's, that's right. the most important piece, whether cow milk is itself super healthy. Right. We're not debating that at this point. The question is the the added sugars, the, the added components, the chocolate and strawberry milk, like that's not natural, right? These are, these are ultra processed foods. That's right. And that's a problem when you think you're giving your kid milk and you're really not, this is where our awareness really needs to kick in our understanding of what those challenges are. And and you mentioned sugar. And I think that is probably the biggest puzzle piece that can be addressed. Yeah. Uh, Maybe not the most easy, but the simplest piece that can be addressed that'll have the most drastic shift because our sugar levels that spike are going to spike our insulin. If that's happening with two, three, four cartons of milk on a daily basis, that's a blood sugar spike in addition to the foods and whatever else they're eating. And that sugar is actually feeding the bad bacteria in the gut, the bacteria that we don't want to have there. And those bad bacteria start to crowd out the good bacteria and the low levels of good bacteria often are the, the link that pushes us to not have good optimal functioning gut microbiome and that gut brain axis. That's right. Sugar piece is so, so important here. And drinking sugar is huge. It it is. And the other piece that I'll say about that, yes, sugar is problematic for all of those reasons. The other reason that sugar is problematic for kids, you know, kids eat smaller volume of food than we do, particularly if they're young. If they're eating a lot with sugar, what it's doing is crowding out other nutrients. If you're giving them lots of packaged things or beverages or things that have a lot of sugar in them, when you look at the nutrient density of those foods and beverages with high sugar, there isn't a lot of nutrient density. There's a lot of sugar that is in there as a simple carb to be burned for energy, but you're not getting uh, those other nutrient building blocks. And so that in and of itself becomes a problem because they are filling up on these sugary things that don't have the nutritional building blocks, the nutrient building blocks they need to the exclusion of then having things in their diet that give their brain and body that information. So that's another piece that I think is problematic there. I think even just adding to that and and kind of pushing a little bit more is the importance of good fats in the diet as well. Yes. Because we know that the vast majority in terms of volume of our brain besides water is good fats. That's what builds up the myelin sheath. That's what fills up those cells that are required. We all have this kind of preconceived notion in the conventional world of fat, dietary fat equals body fat. Not true. Right. Right. And the dietary fat that our kids are getting 
oftentimes is decreased. We're looking at 2% milk because it's reduced fat. We're looking at 1% or, or low fat. And these things look like they're supposedly healthy, when in reality, even for us, we shouldn't be taking those things in because what they've done is they've swapped out the calories of good fat and added in the calories of sugar or other poor fats, bad fat choices, right? These seed oils, like the canola and the sunflower and the vegetable oils and all of these types of other challenges. Let's dig in a little bit onto that fat piece. Like what are yeah. some ways that we can add in good fats into the diet of our kids to support brain development? Yeah, I'm glad you raised this really important, especially for children, because by and large, the diets that kids are eating do not supply the types of omega-3 fatty acids that their brain needs to optimize development. And particularly if you have a child who has clinical symptoms, who's been diagnosed with something like autism, ADHD, uh, epilepsy, learning disabilities, behavioral issues, depression, any of those things, the research is really clear that a deficiency or, or, or you know, non-optimal levels of omega-3 fatty acids are part of the picture of that. And we know that DHA in particular, which is a type of omega-3 fatty acid, is critical for children's brain development in the early years. They become brain damaged. Their brains literally do not physically grow or develop. Now, breast milk has the appropriate levels and ratios of omega-3s, plenty of DHA. But if you notice, if you, uh, you know, formula fed your child or, or are currently formula feeding your child, that's okay. What you'll notice is that those omega-3s, particularly DHA, are added now into formulas because there's a recognition that that's so critical for those early developmental phases. But even throughout childhood, most children are not eating the kinds of foods that are rich in omega-3s, particularly DHA. Things like fatty cold water fish, salmon, tuna, mackerel, you know, uh, those types of things. So supplementing. This is one targeted nutrient that I think really does make sense um, if you can to supplement it for your kids, even if they don't have clinical diagnoses. If they do, it's even more important, right? But even looking at a good quality fish oil or omega-3 supplement, the, the research is clear that that's supportive of brain growth, brain development, brain function. We also have studies showing for children and adults with clinical diagnoses, Things like, you know, ADHD, uh, well, let's just use ADHD as an example, because like 12% of American kids now are diagnosed or medicated for ADHD. So that's, that's a good, that's a good example. We have studies showing that kids with ADHD symptoms, the majority of them, when we do testing of their omega levels are deficient or suboptimal in omega-3s. When we supplement them with therapeutic doses of omega-3 fatty acids, particularly DHA and EPA, they have symptom improvement. For kids with ADHD who are on a stimulant medication, something like Ritalin, Adderall, something like that, and getting some benefit from that, guess what happens when we add therapeutic doses of omega-3 fatty acids to their stimulant? They get a better result from their stimulant on a lower dose. These are the things that should be common practice, yeah. right? These are the things that parents, that healthcare providers should know about and should, we should be leveraging these tools. We have studies on omega-3 fatty acid supplementation and, and foods in 
kids on the autism spectrum, in kids, teens, and adults with depression, with bipolar, with schizophrenia. The research is so clear. So for sure, if you have a child with any of these diagnoses, you know, omega-3 fatty acids at the right dose uh, are really important. And from a food standpoint, there's lots of ways that we can get these in kids, even if they're not going to sit down and like, you know, eat a salmon dinner or, you know, eat sardines or whatever. And actually that's reminding me there's, I have a blog post on my website from a while ago that is like all the ways you can get that in, but smoothies are a great option. You know, you can put fish oil right in smoothies and hide it really well. We can get more things like, you know, walnuts and flax and chia. Now those are not DHA and EPA, but those are still good forms of omega-3. We can hide those in baked goods. We can get those in smoothies. We can sprinkle those on oatmeal or cereal. We can do lots of things with that. We can make sure that our kids are eating the yolks of eggs. We can make sure uh, if it's possible for us in our budget that we're buying animal proteins, particularly beef that is grass fed and finished very high levels of good omega-3 fatty acids there. So, so there are certainly ways uh, hiding things like sardines, uh, putting them in the food processor and adding them to sauces, to dips, to dressings. There are lots of ways to do this, to get these things into kids, even though, you know, many of them won't just sit down uh, and eat these things plain. The importance here is, is understanding that the omega-3s are, are necessary as anti-inflammatory yes. good fats. They, yes. they help to reduce levels of inflammation within our body. They provide a level of resilience to inflammatory challenges that will occur. We're all going to have some form of stress, biochemical or whatnot added to us. Where we can help reduce that inflammation is adding omega-3s in and reducing the number of omega-6 fatty acids that are coming in. And those omega-6 fatty acids, if we're cooking, I highly recommend looking into this and understanding what oils you're using to cook with because those oils will in particular provide the omega-3 or omega-6 options. Do your best to avoid seed oils, processed oils, vegetable oil, canola, sunflower, et cetera. Those types of things we want to avoid. The ones we want to stick with, olive, Mm -hmm. if you can, ghee or beef tallow are one of the, some of the better options. Coconut is a great option. Avocado is one that we use as well. So these are great options that are out there. Use those, understand where the omega-3s are and try to get them not only into your kid's diet, but definitely into your own. They will help you because as we said, and then I kind of wanted to dig into this a while ago, you mentioned that kids love doing things together. We make it a whole thing for the whole family. It, It becomes easier because it's everyone is doing it together and there's a level of accountability within the family. It's not, we are doing this for you or you have to do this for you. It's, we are all doing this together. And there's like a challenge component and you're gamifying it for the kids. And who doesn't love playing a bit of a game or pushing through a bit of a challenge. You're also making it the norm. This is what we do. This is what we do because this is good and right for all of us. Yeah. And when you make it the norm, and you start to really shift the culture of food and eating and all of that in your home, you know, that has a profound impact then, not only on getting kids to eat things that are better for them, but setting them up with the knowledge and the skills and the habits that they're going to need in adulthood to make these decisions for themselves. 
And so I think, yeah, that that's such an important point. I'd like to ask you one last question, and it has almost nothing to do with food because we've we've definitely dug into this. We know sugar is is a big piece of the puzzle. We know good fats are a big piece of the puzzle. But the one that I want to talk about is vitamin D, sunlight, and that natural outdoor experience that so many kids, for the last couple of years especially, but definitely as, as we continue to be more and more indoor screen-based people that they're missing out on. I'd love to talk a little bit about that fresh air vitamin D piece of the puzzle. So important on a number of levels. And, you know, we know that sunshine is so important for vitamin D levels in the body. Vitamin D levels are critical for supporting all different aspects of mental health and child development. Uh, We almost have an epidemic of suboptimal or clinically deficient you know, vitamin D levels in kids and adults, and it has all kinds of effects in the body, including on brain function, brain development, mood, behavior, all of that. And so sunlight's really important for that. But beyond that, we also have research showing that time in nature, time physically outdoors is really important for kids, for their development, for their microbiome. Playing outside, being around trees, plants, dirt, doing all the things kids do is critical for developing a robust, healthy, vibrant, diverse gut microbiome. So that nature piece and studies on everything from nature supporting calming, relaxation, anxiety reduction in kids to nature, you know, boosting mood and improving attention and focus. So there's the nature piece and then there's the movement piece. We are raising the most sedentary generation of children in the history of humanity. And that was before the pandemic and it's worsened, right? And so we can have all kinds of arguments about screen time and whatever, but look, the key is kids need to move in order to develop properly. They need to move. And especially younger kids, before they get to elementary school, those young kids birth to about elementary school, They need to move even more because movement is literally what drives the development of connections in the brain. So, but for all children, movement is really important for building those brain body connections, for development and functioning of the sensory processing system in the brain, for regulating their activity level, their focus and attention, their mood, their behavior. So when we look at the benefit of a strategy like making sure that your kids are spending even 20 minutes a day outside playing, what are we accomplishing there? If it's a sunny day, we're getting good sunlight exposure, we're boosting those vitamin D levels. We're getting them out in nature, which has all of those beneficial effects, and we're getting their bodies moving. And that's sort of a trifecta. So to me, one of the you know simplest levers to pull is making sure that our kids are spending time outdoors moving their bodies. I love that. For me, and, and I think in terms of creating these practical approaches that people can take on and not, not hurting yourself by saying, man, I'm not doing all of those things take one from this and learn from it and, and make one change and don't hurt yourself. Don't, don't beat yourself down if you can't get to hundred percent on it. Right. No. 80-20 rule is key here, right? Like yeah. if you can do it more than you were doing it before, then you've positively shifted how your kid is developing and how you are approaching your and their health. 
So exactly. There's no such thing as perfection, especially not with kids. We're looking on at making progress a little bit better tomorrow than we were today. A little bit of a shift. Pick one thing and start there. That will avoid a lot of power struggle and pushback, particularly if all of these ideas are new for you, for your kid, for your family. Pick one thing and start there. And then just over time, you just keep building on that foundation. Exactly. And, and build that foundation and keep building on it as you go. And slowly and surely, you'll realize that these things are achievable, that we can get our kids to look, feel, function optimally and yeah. not be simply labeled as having this or that diagnosis, which we right. know from a language perspective, from an emotional perspective, telling them that they have this disease or that disease is it's never going to be a positive development, right? Yeah. So we, we want to, in my opinion, create an optimal environment for right optimal functioning and language plays a big role there. And, and we can get into the whole other podcast about that. Yeah, yeah. I really do want to thank you so much for joining us today. Where can people learn a little bit more about you? I've, I have all the websites and we'll put all of them in the show notes, but I'd love to see where people can connect with you more. Sure. So my website is drberkins.com, D-R-B-E-U-R-K-E-N-S.com. I've got lots of uh, articles, videos, handouts, all kinds of things that you can access there, including my podcast, The Better Behavior Show. We've got over 200 episodes now on all different things related to children and young adults and development and diagnosis and treatment and nutrition and all the things we talked about today. You can find that on your favorite podcast player also. Um, and then from a social media standpoint, the main place I hang out is on Instagram and I'm at Dr. Nicole Berkins. I love it. And just for those who are definitely going to check out the Better Behavior Show, I highly recommend it, especially the one on the Vegas nerve. <laughs> <laughs> I think there was an episode on that. Huh. Who was that again? That was my guest on that episode. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so, so much. I truly appreciate it. And uh, for those who are listening, thank you so much for joining. Wish you have an upgraded life and an upgraded day. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.